Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. You're listening to the Agnes Dei that was performed at the coronation of King Charles III during the Eucharist. It was written by the award-winning Tarek O'Regan, a London-born classical composer hand-picked by the king himself. Tarek has written more than 100 pieces in an array of genres, including choral, orchestral, opera and ballet, incorporating diverse influences from outside the orthodox classical tradition. He is also well known as a music commentator and historian, presenting the documentaries Composing LA and Composing New York. Tarek, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Good to be here. So I wanted to start by asking you to tell the story of how you found out that you'd been selected to compose for the service. How did it happen? I received a uh, somewhat cryptic email from Andrew Nessinger, who I knew and had worked with as director of music at St. John's College, Cambridge. This was back in December 2022, sort of Christmas Eve. Um, and the email said, Do, you know, can I talk to you about a confidential matter somewhere, somewhere privately? And I immediately thought, I remember talking to my wife, that he was going to ask me about someone who was about to get cancelled. <laughs> but yeah, we spoke and he opened the conversation with, um, I've just been granted an audience with the king, uh, at which point I thought he was actually winding me up slightly. But uh, as the conversation went on, it became quite clear that uh, this was all true and that he had, the king had specifically asked me to write something based on having heard a piece of mine all the way back in 2006 and uh already at that very very first conversation it was decided it should be for the coronation itself for the coronation service um not for the concert or anything around it and specifically for the moment in the mass um, which is the Arnius Day, which is, you know, the sort of quiet central moment. Um, arguably for many, it's the focal point of the mass, um, where the, they would be, uh, you know, taking communion. And I, I was, you know, obviously in shock, but, but I realized he wasn't taking the piss. So <laughs> that was a good thing. Well, that's a good start because you had to get on with it, didn't you? That's quite a tight deadline. For it was very tight, yeah. And it, it, it. I, I suspect. Well, one of the reasons it was tight. I mean, Andrew hadn't even started his job yet. He was starting in January, so he's you know trying to put all this together without technically being in post. Secondly, um, as it turns out, they were commissioning a huge amount of music. Um, mostly for the music around the service, which um, I wasn't involved with. But the deadline they needed, you know, a couple of weeks later in the sort of middle of January. So that was your Christmas holiday? <laughs> that was my, I, was, yeah, I, had my, I had my parents visiting, got two young kids, it was quite rushed. Um, I mean, the other thing to say is that we, you know, we all had to sign an NDA. So it was all top secret, which in hindsight was very good because I think, the pressure was off somewhat public by it not being in the public uh, domain, you know, public consciousness. So, I mean, that that would have been, I think, extremely stressful to have had my name announced and had not yet written the piece. 
Um, so it was all done and delivered long before my name was announced to the public, which was in March, I think. Uh, well, just let me pick up on a few different things you've mentioned. First of all, you said that the King had heard a piece of yours back in 2006. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, it was a piece called The Windows, and it had been commissioned by Lincoln Cathedral for the restoration and rededication of that incredible piece of medieval masonry and glazing called the Dean's Eye Window. It's really one of the most spectacular pieces of um, stained glass and masonry work uh, in Europe. And this was entirely dealt with by the cathedral. And I wrote, you know, I wrote the piece. It's a setting of George Herbert. It's for two choirs. And so there's an antiphonal effect in the in the piece where they sort of echo each other. And I didn't know until the day um, that the then Prince of Wales, as he was then, um, was turning up for this service of dedication. And I presume he'd been invited because of his interest in architecture. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, so he turned up and... Uh, you know, the piece was performed and at the end of it, um, you know, I had a chat with him and I remember, you know, quite specifically that he had clearly been listening and had a very detailed understanding of the work and made reference to quite a number of musical points in the piece. And it wasn't a sort of glib, um, oh, well done, pat on the back yeah. onto the next person. I think he was genuinely interested in the work itself, how it related to the history of the cathedral and how it related specifically to um, this uh, piece of medieval, um, you know, real master craftsmanship. And it, so, you know, uh, that was eye-opening to me. Um, obviously, this we're going back, what, 17 years or so. And certainly up until that point, I, I suppose had sort of uh gone along with the general consensus that this was a royal family not particularly interested in the creative arts in general and from his perspective that he was most interested in architecture but there was this sort of small c conservatism um yeah. uh, attached to his viewpoint so i i was genuinely surprised as in very pleasantly surprised because just because of I, the detail, really. This is this is someone that had had listened in detail, and um, because he couldn't have heard it before, right? This no, wasn't no, he couldn't have heard it before. Um, he wasn't at the rehearsal. Uh, this was the first time he'd heard it, and uh, it it obviously stuck with him as a piece of music. Um, you know, all these years, and in fact, after the coronation, um, there was a reception at Westmin at uh, Windsor Castle. And uh, I got to chat chat to the king again, and I said something like, "Well, I haven't seen you since Lincoln, Lincoln <laughs> Cathedral." And he he knew he he remembered it exactly. It was just very nice to have this this conversation because yeah yeah I remember I remember that piece, and I he said something like, "I you know I remembered your I remembered your name," and I just I just met, you know asked asked for it asked for you, and that was. It was very nice. Did he have the same kind of commentary about the Agnes Day, or was he too fixated on the communion to listen enough? Well, you know, what was nice is um, the reception was obviously full of people. Um, many of the people that had been 
in Westminster Abbey the day before and uh, various other dignitaries and sort of um, people from, from all walks of sort of British cultural life. Uh, but the, the group that he wanted to speak to first um, was the musicians. And so we were um, sort of brought to him and he was with us for about, I would say for about a half an hour, which is an extraordinarily long time if you consider that you're in a room with a thousand people, you know, and and he's got a lot of people to talk to. Um, but with each of us, yes, he he had something detailed to say about the music that he had heard and why he'd asked for it. Do you think that does show a real level of musical expertise and appreciation? I think it definitely shows that he pays attention and that uh he is interested in the arts in general and specifically making a point with regard to the type of music he's interested in, what he um, wants to, I would think, mark as the beginning of a cultural legacy. I, I, time may prove me wrong, but it was very, very interesting being in Westminster Abbey and I was sat with the opposition so i sat behind and with keir starmer and ed davey and opposite me was you know michael gove and, and rishi sunak and so it, it, it's very interesting being sat in westminster abbey looking at at a government that you know frankly has not been that supportive of the creative arts in general in schools in general education um, they've obviously have an incredibly complicated, um, one might say negative re relationship with the BBC to the point yeah. that the cost cutting at the BBC is impacting their ability to work with their performing arts organisations, specifically the orchestras, the commissioning of new music and uh, the BBC singers. And to, to be thinking that in this coronation which i mean let's face it is a fairly bizarre um ritual um with someone who is clearly saying i stand for the arts yeah. and where the government what the government can't do i am going to try and do and yeah. it when we did meet him the king at uh the reception i think many of us instinctively said Thank you. Thank you for this statement. Thank you for standing behind the arts. Um, yeah. And, you know, we were, one of the things is you can meet, you, you know, I think many of us had, had the opportunity to have, a, you know, a chat with politicians that we met. And I had a very, I would say I had a fairly positive chat with, with Keir Starmer and said, look, you know, whatever happens in the future, if you guys get in, you've really, really got to recommit this country um, to the arts, you can't you can't just leave it up to the king. Are we, are we going back to the 16th century? <laughs> well, exactly. That's what occurred to me. You know, there's always been that very close connection, hasn't there, between royalty and kind of patronage of the arts. Whether you're talking about yes, the 16th century, the Renaissance, the Ottomans. Yeah. How much did you think about these sorts of dynamics of between monarch and music while you were writing? Um. When I was writing it, not not so much because I felt that the piece um, 
you know, with any contemporary piece of music, with any premiere, you've you've got to try and meld this, um, in a sense, uh, two opposites. And it's the it's the inherent paradox when someone asks you for a new piece of music. The reason they're asking you for a new piece of music, and this is a very good example, um, they are they want a brand new piece of music because they've heard something of yours they like. So embedded in that is a sense of can you write this new piece of music that sounds a bit like the other piece that i liked beforehand Um, and this paradox plays out in the fact that you want to write a piece of music that is specific to the occasion which let's face it is not there's not going to be another coronation of charles so it's a Mm one-off but you want to write a piece that then lives on outside of that you don't want to write a piece so specific so that no one's interested in doing it so i always feel when i'm writing and this was a good example of it that i'm trying to um think of i'm always trying to think of the life of the piece after its premiere um and that was the biggest one of the biggest things i was thinking about was not just how it's going to fit into the service but how other people might be drawn to it but the primary purpose is to fit into the service isn't it so how did you go about um, preparing it for that specific one-off purpose? Yeah, I mean, I knew that the service would be celebratory, probably quite loud um, with a lot of, and I, you know, there are classic pieces that I knew would be in there, like Zadok the Priest and Parry's I Was Glad. These are loud celebratory pieces. I suspected that a lot of the commissioned music would be of that ilk, and indeed, you know, it was. Um, and so the as i said the honest day is by nature a quiet reflective moment uh, in any service and so in this particular service would be an extreme would be able to offer an extreme contrast to what else was going on so those pieces are quite complicated those other um uh pieces that i knew would be in there um so I wanted to write something that was very simple, um, that was immediately uh, graspable, if you like, with regard to what was going on, that you could you could immediately understand uh, what was happening in the piece, um, and that it would be largely quiet and reflective and um, not outstay its welcome. The, the piece is only about two and a half minutes long. Well, I want to explore the diversity of influences in your music in general, because I know you drew on a lot of them in this piece of music. And so I guess the piece that perhaps best illustrates some of this is a song called Rai.
Yeah, so Rye, Rye is one of three pieces now, uh, which, funnily enough, I started writing around about the same time as the piece we were talking about in Lincoln Cathedral. So going, you know, going back to about 2006, it was a time in my life where I started thinking about um, who I am, where, where do I come from? And uh, in this particular case, I started thinking of my, you know, my, my Algerian heritage, which is on my mother's side. My mother's family is Algerian. She happened to be born in Morocco, but um, the family is largely out there. And, and in, in Rai, I was trying to channel my memory of this particular type of North African music called Rai, which is a... It, it, would, it was always on the radio, and to this day, it's on the radio. Um, and it's a sort of hybrid. It's a hybrid form of music. It is as specific or as generalised as the word jazz. It has as many influences as jazz. Um, you could think of it as a sort of roughly translated as a sort of sense of attitude or opinion. Um, well, that's what it literally means. That's what it, it literally means. Yeah, and I think. And I think, you know, I think it's a secular form of music. That's the other sort of crucial aspect to it. And it is mostly led by a, almost always led by a vocalist. Um, and I was interested in sort of trying to write pieces of music that, um are not ethnographic, so they're not interested in authenticity and a sense of uh, transcription, let's say, of different types of rye music, but more about focusing on the haze of memory and recollection and the inaccuracies that creep into recollections and memory, despite the fact that you can have extremely strong feelings and visions and hearing of sound you can feel extremely sure of yourself and it can be a very uh, prominent thought but if you were if you were able to magically compare the experience the contemporaneous experience at the time versus what it is that you're conjuring up now you know there are there are, there are inherent differences and and uh, inaccuracies and changes which happens in time and so these pieces uh, of which Rye is the first. There was a second piece called Chabi, which is also based on a different type of Algerian music, and a third piece called Trances, which I only finished um, last year. Um, all, all capture this, this, all aim to um, capture this sort of haze of memory. Um, and there are different aspects of Algerian music and North African music that speak to me in different ways. Um, some are rhythmical aspects that are very specific to that type of music. Um, but the one aspect of it, one aspect that I think does connect quite specifically to the Arnia's Day is this sense of unison. In other words, everyone singing and playing the same melody at the same time. And when it is not quite 100% unison. So it's not like a bunch of robots singing and playing identically or you're programming a computer or keyboard to do it because we're human. So what tends to happen is 
there are very slight deviations that happen either intentionally or unintentionally uh, in the performance of not just uh, rye, but other North African traditional um, Arab music, where these deviations from the unison create a sense of depth or texture. And those moments um, are, I remember very vividly, and I feel um, are sort of quite important to me in terms of what I was trying to to think about. And if you listen to the Anya's Day, yeah. it sort of does that. It starts with a single melody. And then as the voices um, are added to it, starts with the with the with the with the upper voices as other voices are added to it they are in unison but they're broken apart slightly so it's the same melody but slightly phased out and so it creates this kaleidoscopic effect of depth and texture um and it was so it sort of i was really trying to focus on that one aspect of north african music and really try and blow it up in this piece and the organ part um, just captures those resonances. It's not really doing much other than holding down um, long notes, a bit like if you've got a piano and you hold down the sustain pedal. Even if you play a simple melody, um, you'll hear all of those pitches carrying on. Um, and then slowly it keeps on breaking up and breaking up until eventually um, you have these big cluster of sounds. And then at the end, the role is reversed. So the voices take on this resonant sustain pedal like idea and then the very simple melody that you hear at the beginning is handed over um, to the organ so it's a, it is a very simple idea but it but at the heart of it is this focus on what i would call depth or resonance or texture which is when a unison melody is not quite unison because people are not necessarily singing exactly or playing exactly at the same time uh, with an instrument. But that's something that stayed with you. I'm interested in what you're saying about memory, because were you literally writing from the fragments of memory from your childhood, or were you listening to some of this music again and seeing what kind of woke up in you? Yeah, and in all of these pieces and the Arnie's Day, I, I, I never listen to um, music of that period while I'm writing it. I think I'm, I am very, very interested in the tricks that the mind plays and in a sense the thing that sticks with you and in a, in a sense which is more important to me is your memory of it as inaccurate as it is that's what that's what stands the test of time and lasts and, and creates the impression um and i think it's very hard to correct you can you can you know, at various points in my life, I have heard in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, I've heard many, you know, yeah. live or recorded versions of Rai, Chabi, other other types of music. Um, but it's, it doesn't affect the memory aspect so, of it. So with your other influences through that memory process as well, I know that there's bits of jazz, bits of rock. You've talked about your other kind of childhood influences coming through from your parents in terms of rock and roll. Um, are, are you are you kind of searching in your mind for those sorts of fragments as well? I think, yeah, I mean, I think definitely. Um, I think the thing that interests me a lot uh, 
with the rock and roll aspect because it's so specific is that my mother you know as a you know teenager wanted to get hold of music of the other which growing up in algerian morocco the music of the other is led zeppelin hits <laughs> uh it's uh, the rolling stones it's the hoot yeah. Yeah. and the curious thing about um the music that you listen to when you don't have control over it so when you're very young because you you're not able to put on an lp or a cassette or a cd or spotify or whatever it is now um is that music's controlled by the people around you who tend to be you know your parents or guardians or whoever so whereas later on i remember being a bit older and listening to tapes of oud music in cars and listening to whatever was in the charts in the in in the sort of 80s so like like madonna and things like that that was much more under my control but before then you know so when you're you know before the ages of five or six you're very reliant on um what is played around you and that tends to be the music of the prior generation so you know i was born in 78 but my mother was playing a lot of led zeppelin um uh which she'd grown up with you know and that is from you know the late 60s um so it's it's an early it's an it's non-contemporaneous if you see what i mean it's slightly delayed uh and again that that aspect of it interests me like why i must have heard that i mean there must be a reason why i subsequently have been drawn to this music um not just because i went through my mother's lp collection but i think probably because it was just around me before i was fully able to understand what was going on in the world but don't you think there's another aspect to childhood ways childish ways of listening which is that you're not really distinguishing between all these things being played to you you're not distinguishing between the the folk algerian music and led zeppelin it's just music that's playing yes and but why then is there once we've grown up this huge divide between classical and popular music you know and this this kind of these labels of let's say elite rather than popular or poppy um do you do you see yourself in your work and kind of drawing on these influences do you see yourself bridging that divide or would you rather just not even think about that divide well i think i think you're absolutely right firstly i think what happens is you you start getting influenced by um people labeling the music rather than the music itself so a really good example actually if you, is if you think about you know, you get when I went to rehearsals for the for the coronation piece, you've got these young kids who are singing the uh, treble line. You know, these these are young um, boys and girls who who are um, you know under under the age of twelve, and they've certainly got their what they they like and don't like, but they haven't um, they haven't got the sort of the weight of societal reference with regard to different types of music. So they turn over the handle and they sing it and they turn over my piece and they sing it and they turn over the Andrew Lloyd Webber and they sing it. And it's just notes, yeah. right? It's just notes on a, on, on a page. Whereas, you know, the older people 
mm. you know, are more inclined to say, well, you know, well, the, the handle is clearly a work of classic literature. It stood the test of time. Andrew Lloyd Webber, he's come from the music theatre world. We don't know, you know, is it going to be any good? Tara Carriga's contemporary composer, Ooh, don't know, do I like it or not? Those, that, that comes with, with um, you know, growing up in the acquisition, I think, of what many people would think of as taste. The issue of taste is a, is a, is a tricky one because it's what makes you as a creator very sceptical of some of the things that you've written. It, what, it's what makes you edit what you write. It may, what makes you struggle as a creator. Because um, if you don't have any taste, you, it's, the, it's the flip side of, oh, it's just all notes, right? In the same way that these kids are just singing all this stuff. If you write music and you've got that same mentality, well, you're not going to self-edit because you just think, well, it's all fine. It's all good. Um, so the acquisition of taste is double-edged, I think. You, you, develop, yeah. you develop an idea of what it is you like and dislike. Um, but as a creative person, it's sort of vital that you have that. With regard to the divide of music, increasingly I don't think of the different genres of music or different styles of music separated by how they sound i do think we live in an interesting period um where you can more or less divide music into that which is paid for up front uh which is commissioned music which is mostly what i do and that which is paid on the back end which is speculative music and that tends to be mm -hmm. what bands do so they will uh, write the music they want to write and put it out into the marketplace and see if it sells. And that that used to equate to um, how music sounds. So it tended to be classical music was commissioned and pop and rock music was not commissioned. But that in, that is inc increasingly um, not the case. That both sets of music uh, can sound quite quite different. But the way one approaches uh, that sort of material in one's life is quite different. Um, I feel that I've been paid to do my work. I'm not so worried about mass appeal, you know, and needing to sell huge numbers of something either to make an income from sales of records or yeah. more as it is done today um, to create a brand that you can then um, license to other products or go on tour or things or license to commercials. Um, and I think, I think it's a very different world now um, yeah. for those who, for bands particularly, but, but for anyone that was used to making money through, you know, the sales of or downloads of, of records, I think that, that side of the world has sort of imploded somewhat. Whereas the yeah. classical side, as much as people like to say is in trouble, I mean, it's, Comparatively, the classical music industry looks like, in terms of the mechanics of how one goes about writing music, the mechanics of the classical industry today looks pretty much identical to what it looked like 20 years ago. The mechanics of the pop industry, I would think, is utterly unrecognisable. Oh, that's um, interesting. Compared to what it was 20 years ago. Right, right. People aren't buying in the same way at all. Well, the idea that you can stream any content anywhere for a fixed fee. Yep. Uh, anywhere in the world it, it is would have been you know really unfathomable 20 25 years ago and the fact that it would generate zero income oh. or close to zero income and we're still waiting to really see how that's playing out aren't exactly. we exactly yeah 
Well, we've talked a lot about modern influences, um, but the next piece I wanted to talk to you about draws on some sources which are much more ancient. That was an extract from a Callum Nationorek, or an Irish colloquy, a score you wrote based on one of the oldest surviving pieces of medieval Irish literature. What was it about that ancient text that inspired you? Um, what I liked about that text is that um, it is a frame narrative. And so the whole text is very long. and essentially to simplify it covers the arrival of saint patrick in ireland mm -hmm. who's meant to be bringing christianity along with him and he's met by two irish warriors um, oshin and quilcher and what i quite like about it is they, they happen to be hundreds of years old but it's, it's they never bother to explain why they're 100 years old anyway they're 100 years old and are, and are, and are knocking around and they welcome saint patrick Mm -hmm. And throughout this book, um, St. Patrick basically doesn't get to do any proselytizing, doesn't get to say anything <laughs> at all, because the two Irish warriors keep telling him story after story after story after story as they travel around the island of Ireland. And each of the stories is based on a geographical location. So... The most that you'll get from Patrick is, you know, something like, why is this hill called the Hill of Neve? And Oshin will say, ah, oh, it's the Hill of Neve because of a great tragic story involving Neve, the wife of a great warrior. And he realized that over time, what is presented as a story is also a map. Uh, but it's a narrative map where instead of looking at uh, pictures of geographical and geological locations, you're hearing about them both in prose and in poetry. So for every explanation of a geographical place, there is both a narrative prose explanation and then it is sung as a song. And so I, I kind of loved all the sort of many elements of it um, that are brought together. Uh, different different uh, ranges of narrative. Um, and I like the fact that it, you getting everything twice as a poem and as a prose piece. And because there were hundreds of stories, I could pick, you know, a few of them that I wanted to tell in my adaptation. And so the where I went about it and what immediately I remember immediately thinking this is what I want to do is I'm going to have the whole thing in English except for the poems when I use them and those will be sung in what is called Middle Irish mm -hmm. and um, that required quite some understanding so I had to get someone to record them uh, uh, so that I could then transcribe it and then provide that as a resource to singers when the piece is done. Um, so again, there's a lot of texture there because one of the things about different languages is not 
just the meanings or difference between the languages, but it's also just how they sound as musical devices. Middle Irish sounds very, very different to English. It's it's just like a different instrument. Uh -huh. um, so that was the that was the the sort of what drew it drew me to it immediately. But there was a very nice link up in the piece, which is um, with you know. Um, the other side of my family and i you know i should say one of the reasons i started um getting interested in in this work was because obviously o'regan is an irish um name i was my... going to point that out if you didn't yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so my you know and as it, my grandfather's generation would have considered themselves as irish mm -hmm. um and going and then back back from there and so this was a commission from chamber choir ireland um which came to me purely because I'd been working with the conductor on a, on a, on a total, totally different project. But it allowed this sort of beginning to think much in the same way that I'd been thinking about my Algerian side, began thinking about sort of the Irish, the Irish side of it, which was, which was much less known to me because Ireland was not somewhere, I'd, I'd been to Ireland many times, but I, don't, I didn't have immediate family there. So it's in a yeah. sense, it's something that I sort of begun revisiting. Um, but there is a nice link up in the Callum piece, which is that, at the end of all these stories that have been told by Oshin and Quilcher, um, Patrick has a sort of breakdown and summons his archangels. And he basically says, look, I've been hanging around, <laughs> been hanging around this island for months and months, and I've <laughs> basically done nothing. I've not told them about the Bible, I've not told them about <laughs> Jesus, I've not converted anyone. All I've been told are these bloody stories about warriors. <laughs> Island. Ancient warriors. <laughs> uh, what's going on? Yeah. Uh, the the archangels come down and they say, "Look, calm down, Patrick. Have a <laughs> have a have a drink." And say, um, "You need these are very important stories, and you need to have them transcribed and written down beautifully and in in illuminated manuscripts." And the the nice idea, of course, is this is this is the book that you're reading, right? When you read the Acallum, you're meant to be reading these. The, the very thing that Patrick had um, mm. transcribed. But the nice thing is that at the very end, they describe the way that the book is made and mm. the illumination of the manuscript in gold. And it's very clearly explained that the gold comes from, quote, the land of Arabia, um, oh. which speaks to a very long relationship. And uh, the more I've looked into it, the more I think many others are i think beginning to um go more and more into this detail but the sort of long relationship between particularly um north africa and the mediterranean and the west coast of england and the east coast of ireland uh reaching its zenith with the sort of great or terrible depending on how you want to view it era of piracy um mm. in the sort of 18th and 19th centuries uh where there's a huge amount of um influence and cross-cultural influence going on um through that well that's where i'm sure i should be asking you about your cross-cultural influence because it's not just the gold from arabia is it you you've found other links between these two strands of influence between north africa and ireland in fact yeah, isn't yeah. there something in a callum yes so a lot of, yeah a lot of the a lot of the um the piece is written for chorus, bar on drums, and guitar. And um, a lot of the guitar writing, uh, I 
it's sort of influenced by oud um and you know if you look at the if you look at the um sort of uh english folk song revival in the 60s um there are a couple of characters that come up davy graham's one um but yanch is another one uh-huh. funnily enough they get their work um how can i say this without libeling anyone without slandering it they get their work um their work is heavily influential to people like jimmy page <laughs> led zeppelin um and their their whole their whole uh out a lot of their very important work is taking irish folk song and uh and um presenting it uh in harmonizations and accompaniment that are heavily influenced by the oud music of north africa mm-hmm. um she she walked through the fair um by david graham is a very good example of that um and so yeah a lot of the guitar music is influenced by that type of um or in turn influenced by the oud which is the if you think about it is the is the grandparent of not just the lute but the guitar Mm. and uh so there's definitely definitely a link in the guitar music to uh the oud music of arab oud music in particular of north africa um but the other i mean the other thing going back to the honest day and where we where we began talking is the role of the role of unison uh now you go and listen to a traditional an irish band playing irish trad in uh anywhere you know on stage in a pub or whatever it is largely um everyone playing the same melody um and this is very similar they play the same melody or sing the same tune all the way through but occasionally there are these deviations um where there there is a, a tremendous depth of sound that's created and it's again the same thing there's suddenly this sort of kaleidoscopic effect that happens um that i've always found you know very very drawn to so um there are these links um and i i feel there are more and more links i remember that the the two bowron players we recorded the piece with um mm-hmm. i remember talking them to them in the recording session and uh they the bowron which is a frame drum which you play with a, a sort of wooden a wooden stick um that you uh with one hand um and you can create different pitches on the bowron by pressuring the drum head so you can make it go up and down in pitch um i mean you know i was saying that it reminds me a lot of the the moroccan bendir um same style of playing same tricks you can play with it and they said well that's funny because we buy our barons from marrakesh <laughs> there are so many links i mean if you think about how irish sounds or how welsh sounds and how arabic sounds you know there are relationships um that I think go on in different and curious ways. Okay, well then to finish us off and play us out, is there a particular piece that you'd most like to be known for or a piece that you're most likely to be remembered for? Oh, wow. That is a very, very tricky question. Um, The piece... um, there are two pieces that get done a lot um, around the world. Uh, one is called Triptych, 
Um, and I think that gets done because the, the people are sort of drawn to it. It's a sort of ecumenical meditation on very simply sort of life and death, but which I, which I, I, I love that piece and it, it, it is done. It's done quite a bit. Um, and the, 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 the vocal parts are not that hard, but there is a piece for a, a sort of complicated piece for string quartets and uh, eight soloists and two choirs. And it's a setting of Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And it's called The Ecstasies Above. I love it. And that piece, I think, is a piece that's quite special to me, partly because I wrote it I wrote it in upstate New York in a in what is now an artist residency program, but weirdly it was a mansion where Edgar Allan Poe had stayed for quite some time. So I felt somewhat channeled by his eerie presence. Um, but the other thing why why I like it is the the poem is called Israfel, which is from um, uh, the, the sort of Quranic angel of music. That although there is there is Gabriel in the in the in the Quran Jibril, but there's Israfel plays much more of the same role as as Gabriel does. And it's this sort of he refashions Israfel into this all-encompassing angel of music. And I think it's I wrote it, I'm trying to think, you know, quite you know, 20 years ago. And I think it it hints at this element of distance. When we've been talking, we've been going back to this point about distance and memory. And I remember being struck in the poem about this idea of the protagonist being so enamored by the music of Israfel that they wonder, would it be even more beautiful if they could bring Israfel to earth instead of having to listen to this music way up in the heavens? Wouldn't it be more wonderful and then they come to realize that the closer they get the thing that makes the music beautiful is the distance itself and that the perspective um of from that distance is what is part of the beauty and that to bring it closer kills it um and i think i remember being very struck by that idea and of course that very much links in with this sense of the real value in these memory pieces to me is the distance. It's not the accuracy. It's not the ethnographic authenticity. And that by getting close to that, in my mind, it kills, it kills the artistic impulse and that what we actually need is, is the distance. And so, um, yeah, the ecstasy is above. Tarek O'Regan, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines magazine. You can find Tarek O'Regan on Twitter at Tarek O'Regan and find Composing for a King, a piece I wrote about how he wrote the music for the coronation, on our website. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.